Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Compete Clarity Podcast. It's the fourth episode in our CI by Industry mini-series, and boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ever wonder if your colleagues are too smart for their own good? When you're a tech company like Akamai, with tech talent coming out of your ears, it's easy to let your messaging creep into ever more technical territory. Eventually, of course, your prospects and even your salespeople struggle to understand what they're buying and selling. That's a challenge Mimi Ahn, Director of Competitive Intelligence at Akamai, took on and won. She joins us on the show today with the notable accolade of heading up the largest competitive team of any business represented on the show so far. But it wasn't always this way. Keep listening for Mimi's excellent advice for people starting out in CI with their sights set on building a business case for a larger team, as well as on successfully navigating the innate challenges of a technical product line. Let's welcome Mimi on. But before we do, five experts, five industries, five case studies, almost 50 years combined CI experience. If you've been enjoying the CI by Industry series, you'll love the CI by Industry ebook. We've taken our chats with experts in this series and gone even further. We collated shared wisdom, distilling it into established best practices. We teased out differences to identify creative and unique ways of solving industry-specific challenges. If you do competitive intelligence in any capacity, there's something for you in the CI by Industry ebook. We are absolutely stoked with how this one turned out. You're not going to want to miss it, so head to the link in the show notes for more information. All right, Mimi, welcome to the show for the fourth episode of our CI by Industry series. Uh, it's great to have you. And just to kick things off, would you mind giving us a little bit of background on yourself and your experience working uh, in competitive intelligence? Sure. Uh, happy to be here. So my name is Mimi On. I'm the Director of Competitive Intelligence at Akamai, um, which is a large technology firm based out of Boston. Um, I've been in CI for, for quite a while, um, actually. I started my career in market research, and it kind of evolved over time to absorb the CI functions. So I've mostly run market intelligence teams. Um, and previously, I was at HubSpot, which is another uh, New England local company running market intelligence and, and competitive as well. Awesome. And you mentioned you're at Akamai. Um, now, at this point, I could give like quite an amateurish sort of take on what it is that you guys do. Um, but for a bit more context, if you don't mind, would you mind just running us through kind of the basics? I know you do a few different things in cloud computing. Um, so just a little bit of context around that. Sure. I'll try to keep it brief because we have a big product portfolio and I'm sure we'll talk about that later on in terms of competitive intelligence and the challenges there. But um, Akamai was a category creator. So we created the CDN category years and years ago um, for folks of a certain age range. We remember dialing up on the internet and waiting for images to load when we went to websites. Um, and that was, challenge was called the worldwide wait. Um, and that was something that our founders who were out of MIT, a professor and a student, um, resolve to fix. So in terms of the technology where we began with, it was content delivery. And if you've used Netflix, Hulu, any of like those video streaming services, right? Um, chances are you've used our service because we're delivering a lot of that content to the end user. We then uh, evolved into security and now cloud computing. So we have a pretty broad portfolio. If you think about the traffic that we deliver and enable, we can then inspect it and make sure that it's safe, right? And that's a really strong value proposition for most of our customers. So hopefully that awesome. sums that up succinctly. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks very much. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, that is like pretty broad range of like products and services from CDNs um, and cloud computing, and then also security as well. Um, like certainly makes sense for a company that's doing well, I think, to to branch out into those things if you're handling handling one of them. But 
We'll get into that in a little bit. First of all, um, if it's okay, I'm just going to run through like a few sort of rapid fire questions just for a final bit of context for the listeners. So first of all, um, you mentioned you've historically sort of headed up market Intel teams. Um, how big is the team at Akamai? You know, a lot of the people I speak to, it's just them. Sometimes they say sort of half jokingly, it's like one and a half people, the team. Um, uh, is it just you? Do you have like a few people doing competitive intelligence uh, reporting to you? What does that structure look like? Yep, just a, just a few people. Ideally, we'd have more, but I think that's a work in progress. I have three other folks on my team. Um, uh, sorry, four folks dedicated on my team. Three of them are uh, CI analysts, and we have one program manager um, that works on kind of our annualized um, programs. So win-loss, customer stories, and also the administration of our uh, tool crayon, as well as our, our uh, data from Salesforce and CRM. Got you. Awesome. And uh, what stakeholders do you find yourself serving most of the time? Is it mostly leadership? Is it Does it sort of run the gamut across the whole business with enablement staff and marketing and product teams also? Right now it runs the gamut, but when I first started and built the team, because there wasn't a dedicated group, um, we really, well, I had decided that right at that point, right, um, sales was the primary target because they're the ones that needed the, the, the insights immediately. Um, and through, you know, just making progress with that group, we were able to then um, become more of a stakeholder and more of a partner to um, our product teams, marketing teams. And now we're now uh, working with our leadership teams as well for insights. Got you. And was it the same at HubSpot? Like um, you sort of came in and it was perhaps just you to start with and it started with sales and you built the team out from there. Was that is that kind of an experience that's been mirrored throughout your career so far? It was similar. At HubSpot, we were more tightly aligned um, with our go-to-market teams. And so that was the primary driver. And then we expanded out to sales. I would say um, with Akamai being a very large enterprise sales team, we kind of started with sales and then built the relationships with other groups. Cool. Okay. The reason I ask is that I feel like a lot of people, um, you know, when they're starting out with competitive intelligence, one of the most challenging things, especially if you're new, is starting out and being like, oh, wow, I've got to build this whole thing from scratch. And I maybe don't even have that much experience doing something like this. You know, it's always an interesting one to kind of pull out what that journey looked like. So at Akamai, maybe, um, could we just talk a little bit about sort of how that growth occurred, I guess, um, both of the team in terms of who you were serving stakeholders wise as you had more resources to do so? Yeah, well, to kind of address an early question of where do you orient yourself depending on the org, you know, what I did at Akamai was basically do a listening tour, right? Um, luckily for me, I had a gigantic list of stakeholders and folks that I was supposed to meet with as part of my onboarding. And that allowed me to get, you know, perspectives across the business to understand where the need was the highest, right? Especially if you're a single practitioner or new to the function, there's a challenge of prioritization and also knowing where you'll get the most impact, right, for, for your effort. Um, and so listening, right, to the business and understanding where the gaps are is the, I think, a better, a best way um, to make sure that you can build a business case to grow the team. Um, so I, that's just kind of my tidbit there. And that's exactly what I did in, at, at Akamai. Uh, when it comes to laying that groundwork, it was clear that um, the need was most kind of urgent with the sales force. It, like many folks probably who are in CI, there was a lot of out-of-date out materials. Um, the battle cards were kind of, you know, old school PDF, right? One page 
lots of text impossible to skim. Um, and so there was just a lot of work that we needed to do to overhaul some of the existing assets, right? And it wasn't like it was a, a poorly done in the past. It just needed to be updated. And, and I think that because there was no dedicated team, it was kind of everyone's job and therefore, you know, no one's job. And so um, it always ended up being kind of at the bottom of the priority list until it got to a point where it had to be a priority and, and I was brought in. Um, so I actually didn't have to necessarily build the same kind of business case for a team that grew more organically. Um, the urgency was already there and that's why there was an outside hire, right? Um, myself that was brought in. So, um, but of course, having that need, right? You have to fill it, right? To be able to then grow the team. And so, you know, I was really, really clear. And when I set up um, my kind of myself, I had an intern and then we had folks that we were hiring, right? Um, I had two headcount upon me joining that we weren't going to be doing the same thing that previous um, folks who are in CI or partially in CI were doing, which is um, really technical content. Um, and I think that's a trap that a lot of teams can get caught in, especially if you know you're you're a company like Akamai, which is engineering heavy. You know, spun out of MIT, we can still see the campus. Our our CEO is a former MIT math professor, right? Um, and that's great. We have hundreds, if not thousands of extremely technical people. And so when I joined the business, um, I made it really clear that I wasn't going to make a team of technical folks. We had plenty of them. And what we want to do is partner with those folks to pull the insights um, that they had and make that um, extract really simple, memorable, and usable for sales. Um, because that, that translation, that was kind of the work that I wanted our team to do. Um, and we also wanted to be that conduit for all of the different experts across the business, um, because it can be challenging, right, to source and find all the information. Um, and I think setting those expectations up front um, was really, really helpful because um, oftentimes when people don't really think deeply about CI, they just expect a CI analyst or a CI leader to simply know everything about everything, which is absolutely impossible and a difficult place to be in. And so kind of explaining that context and where we we're gonna approach um, kind of the challenge, I think helps set expectations. I think that was really interesting what you said about you specifically didn't want to build a team of like technical people, at least not technical first. How does that sort of tie in with delivering ports and like any kind of deliverable, I guess, to really anyone in the business, if that's comprised of people who are quite technical, do you find that it's best to keep it simple uh, in, in sort of the terms that you're using and how digestible it is? Or do you find that there's something to manage in terms of slipping into more technical stuff simply because some of the people you're delivering uh, that content to are able to understand it if you do? Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely, it's hard. It's a it's a challenge, but part of kind of that um, listening tour that I embarked upon um, kind of helped inform that strategy because we can go technical, but like I mentioned, the vast majority of the company is extremely technical. So me trying to create a, a team that replicates what already exists in the business isn't additive, right? It's just, it's the status quo. Um, the reason why I brought up the listening tour is I would go and talk to sales folks and sales leaders um, and it was absolutely fascinating, the feedback, because I would be like, let's talk about competitor X or competitor Y and what, what we struggle with, like very much like to the tactics, right? And nearly all of my conversations, they were brought back up to a much more higher level strategic messaging and differenti differentiation story, right? We have all the technical know-how that we need. We can go tit for tat in terms of functionalities and features, 
what we were missing was how do we actually get out of feature land and into value, into outcomes, into how we are a provider of uh, a solution that will make a business more effective versus we can do this bit versus that bit and we're you know, 0.3% faster where we have a thousand more of this, right? At the end of the day, what in, there was a little bit of urgency in creating a, a CI function is we could talk about features and our breadth, our, our wide network, all of those things all day long. And it worked and certainly still works. But what they were looking for was that kind of more higher level strategic differentiation, which is my, my specialty. I am not a technical um, lead and I would not have wanted to represent myself because I would have disappointed everyone, right? Um, if I had tried to take that tactic. And I think I was hired specifically because I was very upfront about the value that would bring to, to Akamai. Um, and so because of that, um, everyone that we've worked with, um, was receptive and, and was asking for that higher level differentiation. Now that is a, a wonderful thing for a, a CI lead or a leader to kind of engage with, because if you're already fighting that fight of like, hey, we don't want to do side-by-sides, we don't want to do grids, and this is why. I mean, that's an exhausting conversation. We still obviously have that conversation um, uh, from time to time, but I think we were all aligned on what we're going to try to do is up-level the type of conversations that we have so that we get out of technical land uh, when it's not necessarily and in, in arm our sellers with the strategic value of who we are as a business and why we're better right, than the competition. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So, you know, you, you sort of come in, you know, enabling sales, I guess, is the kind of primary objective. That's the priority. Um, and to do that effectively, it's like, you know, all this technical jargon isn't helping us close more deals. Like, you know, we've kind of got that stuff covered. Um, what we really need to do is build out this other side of it, which is, I, I guess, communicating with prospects in a way that's like instantly comprehensible and doesn't require, you know, okay, where's my technical dictionary or, exactly. or Bible to kind of translate. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, what you were talking about just a second ago, um, mainly about stakeholders and working with stakeholders and how to orient yourself. Let's start with sales then, since they were sort of the priority in the beginning. What do these groups want from you in terms of deliverables? Is it primarily the sort of battle cars and stuff like that? Like you mentioned, um, adjusting that messaging. And if so, in what sort of form do you deliver that to them? If that makes sense? Yeah, sales definitely, they're the most straightforward, which is which is great. <laughs> um, they're demanding for sure, but battle cards is our kind of primary enablement um, uh, asset that we we share with sales. And so we've gone through a couple of evolutions in our, our templates. Um, and we always start now with a couple of core things that reflect kind of that higher level, right, messaging that we just discussed. There's the the elevator pitch, right, of um, why us versus the competition. Then um, there is a SWOT, right, um, standard. I think it's consistent across most uh, folks' battle cards. Um, we also have objection handling. We have a how they sell kind of um, tile. Uh, since we use CRAM, there's kind of the tile components. Uh, just so, you know, at a glance, right, especially for some of our smaller competitors that are not as well known, um, where maybe the rep just literally has no idea who they are and what they do, help them understand their go-to-market strategy, who they sell to, how they primarily sell, whether it's through a partner or direct or, or what have you, right, um, just so they can orient themselves. Um, and then depending on 
the competitor and how deep their portfolio is, we do go into more product specific elements, but we always start with those broader kind of just higher level holistic pieces um, that, you know, we heard our, our sales team wanting more of. Okay. And um, how about leadership? You know, this is something that um, I've spoken to a few people about and um, it seems like leadership um, often they, they want kind of different things. Sometimes it's it's kind of like detailed reports in person in sort of presentation style. A lot of the time it's a written report, but they want very high level overview at the top and then a ton of detail at the bottom just for that what the, that one point that they really want to dig into to make sure it's there. Um, what does that look like for for, for you? Yeah, it's 100% totally different um, delivery method and different types of content that the content that we send um, to, to reps is is totally different and obviously a lot more punchy um, and editorialized compared to what we share with our leadership team. So there's a couple of different um, ways that we communicate with leadership. So we have QBRs, so quarterly updates with our executive team. So I, I actually am not part of the, the marketing update. I'm part of the sales update. Um, and so um, we typically have a quick um, must-know uh, section on competition um, that I work with our sales leadership on um, in terms of like what, what it contains. Then on a quarterly basis, we send a massive um, quarterly competitive update. It's basically us just keeping tabs on what the competition is doing over that quarter. It can be um, people changes, right? A, a new leader coming or in or, or leaving the business. It could be obviously announcements, um, uh, investments, all of that kind of stuff gets wrapped into an incredibly large uh, document. Um, that is meant for our entire leadership team. So it's not just um, product leadership or sales leadership, but it includes um, the executive staff. So legal, uh, finance and all of that. So it obviously, as you can imagine, has a more general and top level uh, kind of analysis uh, versus something that we would you know, send to a specialist um, sales board. Um, those long um, updates are kind of a, a standard deliverable that our, our CMO actually encouraged me to start producing. But because we have late breaking or fast breaking news, we didn't want to just wait for the end of the quarter to you know send that to leaders. So we also do these competitive news flashes, um, which are email based as well. Um, and the distro list changes depending on the type of news and the competitor. We have a security business, we have a cloud and, and CDN business. So um, sometimes it's not pertinent, sometimes it is, um, depending on what that news uh, is. And so we send that kind of more um, sporadically ad hoc to um, certain people within the leadership team. So those are the primary ways that we are pushing information out. And then obviously we're receiving right requests on an ad hoc basis from our leaders as well. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. You mentioned like pushing. Um, so what's the balance like in general for you between like content you're pushing to people um, versus content that is kind of sent to some sort of like centralized silo and kept up to date that people can pull from as and when they need an update on competitor X or competitor Y? So for our sales and, and marketing org that it's, it's much more of like, we're just pushing, we're not pushing, but we're keeping things up to date and they know where to find it. Right. So um, our, our tool of choice is crayon, our battle cards on the competitor of their, you know, the, the, the URL, the link is constant and the, the, the content gets updated um, as needed based on what's going on. So that is a little bit more of the kind of like, it's perpetually being updated and we're not necessarily 
um, making grand updates uh, to the field or, or to the rest of the company that these things are being looked after. There are exceptions when, like, when we do a large push that's tied to either a, a major release or a competitive kind of program, then we do kind of like remind folks that something has been updated, but that's kind of something that we just maintain in you know, perpetually. For um, leadership, that is definitely something that we have um, evolved Prior to kind of this year, we were still building our, our team and um, kind of trying to create that reputation to be resources for leadership. Um, and once, you know, again, our CMO kind of felt it was time that for us to be more proactive because we were mostly reacting to executive um, requests, that's when all of the proactive pushes started happening. You kind of have to earn it, at least maybe at this company, right? And it's not because of any kind of political reasons. It's more of like, you know, you have to basically have the sales teams and all of the folks on the ground really um, buy in before you earn the right to start telling leadership what's going on, what to do, right? Um, I feel like that's probably a very natural evolution that most CI teams want to take, right? To get out of in pure enablement and reacting to deals to actually helping um if not set strategy, making sure that your leaders have a, a, a clear picture of what's happening in the market so that they can make the most informed decision. And that does not happen overnight. That is, in my opinion, and be curious to hear what other folks have done or approached it is, it's something you have to earn. Um, and we're at a point now, luckily, where we have that executive support and we've earned that right to push things to our leaders. And no, yeah, I think that definitely mirrors a sentiment of other people I've spoken to. The the sort of general path really is come in, work with sales first, prove the value of your program there, and then generally you'll get the ball rolling in terms of buy-in from other groups, interest from other groups when they see that you're providing value and kind of you've managed to earn the trust, I guess, of people higher and higher up the business, I guess, or, or at least that command chain anyway. Um Right. So just before we move on to data, then one thing that you mentioned kind of before the call, um, that I have to say stuck out to me that I, I found quite interesting and made me quite excited for the call, actually, because I, I'd love to get your perspective on this uh, in a bit more detail, uh, is that you said for you, at least in some sense, it doesn't really make much sense to think about competitive intelligence as a process, uh, at least in terms of what you're doing at Akamai. You mentioned it's quite ad hoc and reactive just as part of the sort of nature of what you do. First of all, I suppose, are there any kind of or many repeatable elements of what you do that could be said to be kind of something like a process? Um, or is it really much too dynamic to really be looked at that way? No, thankfully, it is not. I think the the questions are always different and dynamic. But the, the process in which you answer those questions, luckily, it is repeatable because otherwise you'd lose your mind, right? Um, if you're dealing with that kind of chaos throughout all of, you know, your, your, in your entire day-to-day -day job. Um, so we have a hard time, and I think that's the case for, for most teams doing anything, predicting, right, what's going to happen next, right? We can lay out a strategy, but it, it could be, you know, uh, completely shot in, in, in a week or a day, given whatever might be happening in the market. We've been seeing that volatility in the last couple of years, right? Um, but, but what, you know, my team really has focused on is creating the process. So even if we acquire a new company and we have a new set of competitors, um, there's a lot of chaos that just happens with that kind of integration and trying to um, in 
get as much information as possible to the field as quickly as possible. Um, so that can be chaotic, but the standard and the process of creating a battle card and pulling that information, the things that we want as inputs so that we can create a, a, a consistent output, that is still very much um, something in our control and something we continue to refine. Similar to some of the questions that we get from, from leadership, we kind of can't anticipate, right? Like what they would want to know. Just on this call, I've gotten a, a, a message that our um, our GM of our security business wants to know more about this uh, competitor. Uh, what do I know? Um, and the the good news is, if you do the work, um, you actually have um, a higher chance of saying, "Oh, we know a lot of things, right? We've been actually building this foundation, and when the question comes, we can we can we can anticipate and at least grab what we have quicker." versus then being completely reactive, right? And being caught um, on your back foot. So it's like, you just need to do the work and ideally, right, um, you won't get stumped. You'll probably still get, you know, really difficult questions, but if you're doing your job, you should have an idea (laughs) of what's going on in the market and be able to answer at least um, at a perfunctory level, right? Um, What what the executive questions are, and then, you know, promise, right, using your standard methodologies to get the follow-ups um, based on whatever the requirement is. Yeah, yeah, that, that's good to know, because um leads quite nicely into something else I was going to ask you, which is, um, you know, how much of this data are you kind of collecting passively using some sort of like light lift process that's reasonably automated, that's happening in the background sort of as you go, and how much of it is manual where, you know, something comes in and you're like, oh, okay, I have to fill in some gaps here. Um, what's, what's, what's that split look like? Yeah, we, I mean, we have lots of data sources as well. So I, I mentioned Crayon a couple of times. So kind of what's happening publicly right out in the market is being aggregated, thankfully, um, by Crayon, because otherwise it's just a challenge to track everything. And since it's part of a, you know, kind of like a, a feed, we're able to highlight things, pin things, add analysis, share it out, or put it into battle cards so that, um, again, people can see that we're keeping things up to date and we're on top of things. Um, so that's where like outside um, uh, news items or even, you know, website updates. Um, we track uh, like at least 25 um, pro competitors. So we're inspecting what's happening on their websites, what content they're putting out, um, as well as obviously press releases and, and um, news briefings and all of that. Um, that's been a, a, a good way for our pretty lean team to just at least be on top of, of what's happening. Um, then uh, for our major competitors, there's also earnings calls and, you know, we work with our IR team. Um, on getting some of that insight on you know what's happening in the state of the business. Um, and then you can imagine that that there's a, a bit of manual interaction and work that goes on to all of those things, even the crayon piece, which is fairly automated. Then we go into really, really um, manual uh, <laughs> stuff, which is um, interfacing with um, the major analyst firms. Uh, Akamai is covered by all of the, the major firms and we place pretty well in the majority of like Magic Quadrants and, and Forrester Waves. And so we keep those relationships with those analysts that cover us. Um, and my team uses um, our inquiry access to also understand, again, what's happening in the market, what they're hearing, what advice they have for us as we react to changes right in, in the space. And so that's been a really valuable way for us to get outside in um, firsthand kind of advice and, and insights um, 
none of it is like there, there are NDAs in place. None of the analysts, uh, just to be clear, share kind of NDA materials from our competition, but they are able to guide us, right, a little bit more as we think about challenges that we're facing either in our uh, market or as we think about new markets. Um, then super, super manual. I mentioned the program manager that looks at win-loss, right? Um, we also look at our CRM data. Um, and that's really, really important to, to my team because um, I mentioned the broad portfolio that we have and you know, companies have to have org structures, right? And so our org structure, we're mostly, especially on the product side, oriented towards our three pillars, right? Cloud, um, delivery, and security. But my team straddles all three. And so when I talk to an STG, you know, security leader, they care just about the security slice, right? Um, but I will have the context of what's happening and how that influences the cloud side or the CDN side, right? Um, and so that data allows us to look holistically when most of our uh, executive stakeholders are kind of siloed into their BUs. Um, and that actually is really, really powerful because we can then bring outside context and what's happening in other business um, businesses, right? Um, BUs to other leaders and kind of start sharing more about what is overlapping. Uh, um, and I think that that has actually helped us um, Unexpectedly, because just of the way that our team functions, um, it's unusual for some for a team like ours to be so broad. Um, and I think that's where we've actually been able to build more of a case with the product leaders. Hopefully, that answers your question. Oh no, definitely, yeah, it definitely does. Um, quite a lot covered in there, really, from um, you know the, the sources, um, data sources, what comes in. Um, via the competitive intelligence platform, you know, website updates, news releases, press releases. Um, you mentioned the the earnings calls and stuff like that. Um, and then I guess you know, kind of more customer research side. Um, you've got the win loss program going on um, at the same time. Is there ever any um, kind of uh, internal interviewing, I guess, or surveying that goes on in terms of like with subject matter experts and stuff like that, just to pull, um, even if it's perhaps filtered through the kind of eyes or, or minds of somebody else internally. Um, it, it, does any of that go on as well? Absolutely. Just as you were listening to this, I remembered, I forgot, I remember that I forgot to, to mention our field intelligence. Um, they're extremely valuable source of efficient. And usually when we go through win-loss so that we can then source um, uh, reps or, or IAT, integrated account teams, um, to interview, uh, to understand, right? Because all, all we can do is look at the loss reason and maybe a, a verbatim, right, written in. Um, we get a lot more context and, and understanding when we actually speak with the account teams. Um, we also, using Crayon and, and through our, you know, uh, internal communications platforms, right? We receive field intelligence. So um, whether it's an RFP request or um, um, some deck that a, a competitor rep had sent to a customer or prospect with all of these claims that, you know, we would like to address, um, that's really, really helpful in us understanding how, um, you know, we're, we're represented, right, by the competition. So I would say, all the things I listed, you know, especially on win loss, that's just a means to actually speak to experts um, because they're the ones with the knowledge and the insights and the kind of the nuggets that really help um, amplify our content. 
We also um, look into, you know, new hires or folks that used to work at competitor companies and if they're comfortable sharing kind of, you know, how they were trained to speak against us or any insights that they may, ha may have, we definitely run those interviews too. Those are really helpful because a lot of the questions that we get asked, especially from the executives, is like, what's going on in company A? You know, it's really hard to get behind the firewall and really understand how a business runs um, from the outside. And so um, where we're able to source that kind of intelligence is really helpful. Awesome. No, thank you. It's something that I always wonder um, because, you know, it seems like uh, most every uh, competitive intelligence professional I've spoken to has a really great handle on each of those three pillars, if you like. I guess a question for you, um, if the team was smaller and the budget was lower, um, you know, and because it sounds like data might be reasonably hard to come by. And that's why, you know, there are these kind of analyst firms that you're speaking to, um, to kind of aggregate some of that stuff and that market intel trend data and, and kind of relay that to you. If the team was smaller and the budget was lower, how would your approach be different in terms of, um, getting a hold of data, which sources do you think you'd rely on more? Would that be something that you kind of have to build out anyway to compete, do you think, um, in the space that you're in? That's a that's a difficult one. Um, getting what, what we could call maybe more insider knowledge, right? That is definitely um, challenging for all CI teams. So if you're small and if you're also, um, you know, have a, a, a pretty low budget, I think the turning internal and having um, as many conversations as possible with um, internal folks who've either, again, come from a competitor business, it's very likely that's probably how they found you, right? Or were, were interested in working um, at your company to get those insights would probably be um, the most worthwhile because there's only so much that you can glean from, from the internet, especially if your competitor companies are private. And they're not mandated by law, right, to on a quarterly basis share how their business is doing. And even our public, right, um, competitors, there's a lot of stuff that gets glossed over when they um, go on earnings calls and share out their reporting. You really need someone who has some visibility to kind of decode certain things for you. Um, that's where you get the most value. And that's the, that is the, the I think the, one of the bread and butter work of CI teams, because technically anyone can do the Googling that your team is doing, right? To, to find what's publicly accessible. It's spending that energy and time. And it, it's a lot of energy to source reps, bother them, ask them if they would talk to you, right? Get on those calls. Uh, explain yourself and, and what you're trying to accomplish, right? Doing that over and over again. If, if that is not your... Uh, ideal job, then you definitely shouldn't be doing CI. But these conversations are the most valuable, right? Because you can pull away some nuggets, even a throwaway comment that a rep or, or a former employee might throw at you um, that might not mean anything. If you've had 20 of these conversations, you string together an actual narrative, you start understanding more, right? That is just mandatory part of the, the work. Um, for, for Akamai, we're a large, large enterprise-oriented security and, and content delivery business. Um, we have to uh, engage with the gardeners and foresters of the world. Um, and it's a mutually beneficial relationship for us, obviously. And so um, if you're a smaller company and not in those types of research firms radar, then there are smaller firms as well. Even things like G2, 
where you can look at um, source like customer um, feedback on what uh, a company does well or not so well. Those are all kind of places where you can get more of that end user um, uh, information as well. Lastly on data, um, there always seems to be such a massive amount coming in for everybody. It sounds like a bit of an organizational nightmare, to be honest. Um, so a couple of questions around that. First of all, um, I know you said you use Crayon. Um, for the other stuff that's coming in, um, maybe more qualitative stuff, uh, you know, interview-based intel, where does that data kind of arrive? Um, and how do you organize it all once you've got it, if you do? Um, or do you tend to sort of process it, sift through it on the fly, if you like? It's a little bit on the fly currently, but we're trying to uh, codify it and put it into a, a central place. So the way that it kind of organically started and getting, um, again, qualitative information, typically through interviews, right, with um, either external parties or, or internal folks um, was for us to build out our battle cards, right? If we, competitor X, we wanted to share win stories, we wanted to share loss stories, lessons learned, right, from those experiences that reps could kind of quickly take away. Um, and so we were sourcing, um, like, for example, lost deals or, or won deals through through our CRM. Then we would run those interviews or my analysts would run the interviews and kind of summarize them for the battle card. And that's where they lived. Eventually, there were enough stories and they were all dispersed across different competitor battle cards that kind of made sense for us to maybe put it some in a central location just so we all knew where it was. And so that's something that, you know, the program manager on my team is working on um, in conjunction with our um, customer advocacy team that runs like, external case studies. Um, I think partnership with other teams is super important for most CI teams because you're going to be lean for the most part and you depend on other teams to get stuff done and where you can kind of get the most, I guess, bang for your duck. But your, your buck is to partner with other teams with similar uh, goals to kind of either crib on their processes, borrow some of their lessons learned, um, and try to create a little bit more of that, I think, goodness all around for, for everybody. I think one of the, the nice things about competitive is that everyone is interested in it, right? And so there's more opportunities for you to get buy-in than maybe you know other teams that are kind of just solely focused on one end goal. Awesome. And is there anything that you do to make sure that the data is clean as it comes in um, or kind of, I guess, for the qualitative stuff that is accurate or do you kind of try and factor in, um, I guess, a little bit of buffer um, or where you sort of factor in margin for error as it comes in and you allow for that in the analysis? Yeah, I mean, cleaning CRM data, I think, is a challenge for, for every business, no matter how big or small. So we kind of, we go in um, with assumptions knowing that it isn't going to be fully accurate, but we like to say it's directionally accurate, right? Our top three competitors have stayed our top three competitors quarter over quarter, and it's been consistent, right? So we know who they are, and maybe if it's off by, you know, plus or minus 10%, that, that's okay, because it still directionally tells us what we need to know. Um, and uh one of the things that we we do know is um, this data is better than no data. Um, and that is something that has been adopted across not just my team, but our sales ops teams, our product ops teams. We use it because we have to. Um, and so there are also other initiatives um, typically run out of our sales enablement and sales ops teams to try to make sure the data is as clean as possible. But we understand that, you know, there will be there will be variances. Um, 
validating that data and confirming it, that's what that extra step of interviewing and speaking with reps um, allows for us to do. Because again, the data can only tell you so much. It can tell us what the top three competitors are, but it's not going to tell us how we win or how we lose or, or other things that we can think of, right, to try to overcome that. That does require that extra step in that extra conversation. Awesome. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds a lot like that quote, like, um, perfection is the enemy of progress. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as you're moving towards the end goal and iterating and improving, then um, then uh, then the outcome is going to be better than than not taking action because you refuse to use imperfect data. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay, so we've spoken about data in a, a little bit of length. We've spoken about stakeholders a little bit as well. Um, you know, who you're serving, what forms that takes. Once you've got all the data that you need, what does the kind of process look like? for kind of transmuting that from its raw form into something that, okay, this is like certified analysis, if you like. Um, Now I'm going to pass that on to leadership or I'm going to pass this on to um, whoever's on the receiving end. There's a couple of ways. So, you know, pulling churn loss data from the CRM, it, it, it was first a means for me to gauge, right, where who our competitors are, right, and how much of a risk they pose for the business. And it allows our team to really more um, unemotionally let folks know these are our priority competitors and these are not because of the impact that they have to our revenue, right? Um, For any rep, right, uh, the competitor that they're facing is the most important one but holistically, right, that we can't service every competitor and we don't know everything about every competitor. And this is the way for us to kind of um, reveal our prioritization process. Um, So that was kind of the the first kind of reason why uh, we started looking at that data. Now we are able to then on a quarterly basis report out, right, um, more holistically, who is our biggest source of L? What are the reasons? Um, geographic breakouts, and we kind of change it up quarter quarter depending, uh, so that we can show more teams the breadth of what we can do with the data. So more recently, we broke it out by by industry for our industry marketing team, and we're actually going to hold like a workshop for them to get access to our our dashboard, which is all in A three sixty, so that they can self serve. Um, we cannot look at every permutation of our data for every single team that's responsible for some go-to-market or some territory, right? Well, our goal is actually to be that conduit and and teach folks to use the data that we have so that they can form more effective programs. And so um, our goal is to show what's possible, but not do everything for every team because we just, we can't, we just can't. Um, So I think there's a lot of, of work that we're still doing, but we're making good progress on that front. Okay. And um, presumably then, once it's time to hand over to the stakeholders, um, it's uh, how much of it is it? It's a one and done exercise, um, like whether it's a, an in-depth report or a competitive positioning statement. Um, how much are you iterating over that with feedback from that stakeholder group? Um, so does it become like you send out a deliverable and then, for example, the stuff that... Uh, you know, appears in crayon that you mentioned earlier, it's kind mm-hmm. of iterated on endlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that is also informed by the other side giving you feedback on what they've received? Uh, it's it's a little bit on a case by case. So if, um, for example, we're refreshing an existing battle card as part of a larger um, go-to-market push or a new feature release, then there's much more um, feedback given by our product counterparts, for example. Um, then we have regular maintenance, right, of, of 
content and battle cards that don't necessarily touch other folks's, you know, um, lanes. We tend to always ask for feedback because we want to validate um, what we're putting out there. And so it depends on like the, the, the circle of experts depend, you know, uh, for each competitor. So we try to always get feedback, but the, the scale of it changes depending on if it's just like a, a standard update versus something that's part of a larger push. Um, that's kind of the, the, the sales enablement content. Um, for briefs that we send to, to leadership, that um, that typically um, has more oversight because it's part of a larger go-to-market messaging play. So again, if we recently acquired a new company, so we're building the new overall top-line messaging brief that's you know, product marketing, I sit alongside them. We have a competitive brief as well that we deliver to the CEO. And so both groups, along with like the teams that uh, came over from the acquisition, were reviewing the documentation to make sure that we were all aligned. Um, and once that was settled, right, we're still iterating, but we got kind of the sign off, you know, on from leadership and we will continue to update that based on, you know, our roadmap um, updates and whatnot. But that's basically baked and we probably don't have to have that large group come in again unless there's something completely off the wall that happens. Um, so those are kind of more one-offs. Then we have um, kind of more annualized um, updates. So one of the things that we did last year was kind of our top line strategic and, and tactical competitors. Our tactical competitors are the ones that we are kind of um, selling against today, right? They're the ones that are causing the most pain for our reps and to their business. Um, and so we're listing them so that the leadership team understands like who they are. But we also have strategic competitors who are building our products against for the future, right? They're not, sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're not the same. And we also wanted to lay that out. So the tactical competitors, that was something we sourced from win-loss and from validation with the field. The strategic competitors, that was validated by our product leadership teams, right? To make sure that we're all aligned. Um, and we do that, we're going to, actually, we need to refresh it um, this summer. So that'll be something that we kind of run through again. Um, but those are things where we have a little bit more consistent kind of like annualized, um, the same stakeholders will be looking at it to make sure that it's again um, in line with what we're building towards. Awesome. And, and one thing that I wanted to ask you, um, just with regards to analysis again, um, something that gets a lot of clicks online, you know, as a content guy, you know, that's something that I'm thinking about um, is like different kinds of frameworks, analytical frameworks, but something that you know, might get clicks, but I'm not so sure is actually used in a meaningful way in practice a lot. Um, so are there any frameworks that you like to kind of plug things into? I know that SWOT analysis is almost unavoidable to use, I guess, in some sense, you're going to be thinking about strengths and weaknesses, opportunities, threats. So is there anything else that you use as well? Um, uh, personal analysis or anything like that? We did use more of the frameworks in at, at HubSpot and less so at, at Akamai, just because um, the complexity of the product suite here, um, it's hard to kind of cram it all into one framework, right? Even for our larger competitors, we have multiple battle cards because there's multiple product lines that we compete against and there's multiple swats. Um, and so um, that's been, the frameworks that we have built are more like internal to us. And it's simply the process of gathering the information, what's most um, pertinent and, and valuable to our field. 
um, and not necessarily something that's been like a standardized. Um, with that said, I've seen, you know, at least like battle card templates and they're all kind of variations on the theme. They're very similar. What we have is very similar to what's been prescribed externally. So it's always good to see that. Um, my previous um, manager and SVP at HubSpot really loved the two by twos. Um, and so, you know, that's just something that we um, kind of got like ingrained in our process. Um, and it wasn't fun because boiling down competition to a two by two framework um, is next to impossible, but it re really reinforced. And it's something that I am a stickler for with my team. Um, it reinforced the simplicity of a message, right? Um, ideally, what you want to deliver is something really straightforward and simple. Um, and you'll know it's good if it's backed with a lot of information. If you know that a, a huge, I'm trying not to swear, a huge amount of work, right, went into three bullets and you can validate that and back that up, that is when you've done a good job because you can overwhelm your stakeholder with a ton of information. But if it's just, if it's just inputs that they can't do much with, or if it's not something that they can remember, you're not all the way there, right? So simplifying things into, you know, whether it's a two by two or something else, right? That's really, really critical um, because as a CI team, that's that's your job to take all of the data, all of the inputs, all of the anecdotal information, right? And make it useful and actionable to a leader that is looking at your content for 30 seconds, right? If you can get that across, then you'll be successful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Like, um, you know, it, they need to be able to pull on the thread um, if they want to. Uh, yeah. I guess before we wrap up, is there anything that you feel is kind of integral to your process um, or the way you do competitive intelligence at Akamai that, um, that we've missed at all? No, I think one of the things that we didn't speak about, but I think was reflected in some of the things that I said is that you have to constantly communicate right, um, with all of the different teams that you work with on what you're working on. Um, I think one of the challenges that that CI teams has is, in, I've seen it in different flavors and different companies, is if you build it, they will come. That's not true, right? Uh, with all of the things that be, are being thrown um, at employees today, like you really have to roadshow. You really have to say the same thing over and over again, point people to the same asset repository. It doesn't have to be crayon, wherever it is that you put your information. Um, that is a lot of the work, honestly, at least for, for me as, as the leader of the team is to make sure that all the good things that my team is working on, it gets seen. Um, and the only way to do that is to continue to kind of just get on the pavements, talk to reps, talk to leaders, talk to product teams and make sure that you know, you're on folks' radar. Awesome. Well, Mimi, I'd like to say thank you so much for your time um, and for coming on the show. You know, it's always a pleasure uh, to be able to chat with people who do this stuff day in and day out. And um, yeah, if we can use this platform to uh, help people who might be struggling or just looking for new ideas, um, then we're very glad to be able to do that. So thanks again. That's yeah, a pleasure. Thank you. Five experts, five industries, five case studies, almost 50 years combined CI experience. If you've been enjoying the CI by Industry series, you'll love the CI by Industry ebook. We've taken our chats with experts in this series and gone even further. We collated shared wisdom, distilling it into established best practices. We teased out differences to identify creative and unique ways of solving industry-specific challenges. 
If you do competitive intelligence in any capacity, there's something for you in the CI by Industry ebook. We are absolutely stoked with how this one turned out. You're not going to want to miss it. So head to the link in the show notes for more information.